You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness and physiology right now. In this episode, Dr. Nader goes into depth about the science of happiness with Bob Roth, the CEO of the David Lynch Foundation. It's my distinct honor, Dr. Nader, to continue this ongoing conversation with you about the knowledge of transcending, transcendental meditation, consciousness, creativity, the brain, life, world peace, <laughs> broad range of topics. And what I want to do today is just go right into um, so start with this, this word transcendence and transcendental meditation. I know that the word meditation means thinking, and I know that transcendental meditation, as you've said in previous interviews, transcendental meditation is a simple natural technique that allows a person to access what scientists call a state of restful alertness inside. But why did Maharishi use the word transcendental in, part of, in front of meditation? Because there's mindfulness meditation and there's you know, there's deliberative meditation and contemplative meditation. What does transcendental mean and why transcendental meditation? First, you know, mind uh, is the origin of the term mind, origin of meditation. It's not necessarily actually thinking, but this is what people generally assume. And that's the truth of the mind. The mind is an instrument, if you like, a phenomenon of thought. The mind holds thought. And then you have a sense of intellect, which is a discriminating part of the mind. So the mind thinking, and then the mind discriminating between different values, we call intellect. And then there is a deeper sense also of self, of the self, of I am, who am I? The sense of being one person in a continuity throughout life, even though everything changes on the outside. Yet that sense of self is different from, if we can call technically the mind, the intellect, or the ego, the sense of self. So these are already three different values. Now there is a value beyond mind, beyond intellect, and even beyond the sense of smallness of the self, and that is the value of consciousness. We call it pure consciousness or pure awareness. To go to that level is the ultimate transcending, because the term transcend means to go beyond. And so transcendental is that which goes beyond all of these levels. Of course, if you want to go deeper into it, we can look at the history of philosophy and thinking and see what transcendental has been you know, used to mean. For example, in the Kantian philosophy of Kant and who read, used a lot the term transcendental, and he even had the transcendental argument, or what we call transcendental aesthetics. And that is uh, quite different, because philosophers have thought and have experienced David Hume, uh, Descartes, uh, the existentialists, uh, the phenomenologists, they had all of this idea is that every time I look at myself and think... Like in a mirror? 
Look at myself. No, look at myself oh. inside myself. Uh-huh, uh-huh. In look my within mind. myself. Look, look within. within myself. Yeah. Right. Every time I look within myself about my consciousness, trying to understand what is consciousness, I always find an object of consciousness. I always find a thought, an image, a dream, a feeling. So there is always something. And that has been even called the intentionality, the value of intentionality, mostly by the phenomenologists and existentialists. So the intentionality of consciousness means consciousness always happens or is about something. And if there is nothing, you cannot imagine to be conscious because they try and try and thought and close their eyes and Mm. imagine things. And so they have decided that the mind and consciousness are kind of similar and there is always an object of consciousness in order to be conscious. I think, therefore, I am. Yeah, I think, therefore, I am is one aspect that proves. And the I think, therefore, I am comes also from the idea that Everything in the relative is always changing. The relative means the changing field of daily living, of activity, of uh, planning, of imagining, of sorting things out, behavior, and etc. is changing all the time. The body is changing all the time. Impressions are changing all the time. And therefore, there was a question in the existential reality. We call it ontology, if you like, in philosophy, the sense of being. What is being? And people even in philosophy since a long time wondered, how do we know that we actually exist? How do I know that I exist? And Descartes' beautiful thought was, well, one thing I am sure about is that I am conscious. Everything else changes, but my consciousness is something I am sure about. And therefore, because I am conscious, I think, therefore I am. And that is one aspect of reality. Now, the transcendental value came along a bit later, but it's also the dynamics between the empiricists and the rationalists. Big discussions. You know, when we try to understand our world, we understand our surrounding, we think and we plan and we make calculations in our mind. And then we apply this to the surrounding. So most people... What do you mean, for example? For example, uh, how did the apple fall? Mm-hmm. Okay, the apple fell. Okay, the apple falls is an experience in awareness, but also through the senses. You see an apple falling. Now your mind analyzes how come the apple falls? Why does it fall always in this specific way? Why does it take a trajectory? What is the acceleration? Mm-hmm. Why does it get faster as it falls? And then the intellect starts analyzing. There is gravity. There is the Earth. The Earth is pulling another mass to itself because gravity is a force, and we can even calculate that force. So intellectually, we are analyzing and understanding what is happening physically or through the senses to understand the universe. We look around, we see the sun rising from the east, going to the west. We think the sun is moving east to west. But it doesn't match all the movement of the other planets and the structure of this. Is that an empiricist? This would be a rationalist, Rationalist. in a way, thinking. Uh uh Like the senses are something. I see. And then the 
mind, re- reason, rationalist, it means to reason. <laughs> the reason comes and says, I can order my universe based on my inner intellectual analysis and thought. And that's how actually intelligence and understanding come from reason. Because, you know, without reason, the senses give you a different kind of details about the universe. You don't think that the earth is round because you see it, it's flat. But when you analyze the behavior of things, your mind starts putting things together and saying, well, it works this way. And even what your senses are telling you, it's not correct. So this is how the rationalists came to say, ultimately, there is something within me that structures my mind Mm -hmm. and that makes my mind think in a specific way. That is within me is something innate that is part of the dynamics of my awareness of my mind. That's how, for example, Plato, who is also a rationalist and an idealist, said that, in fact, there are forms that are structures, dynamics of consciousness, of awareness, that are inherent within the structure of the mind and then the mind applies them to the outside. This is the rationalist. The empiricists, you know, Locke and Hume and Berkeley, mostly the British, they like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, They came out by saying, actually what happens in your mind is first the result of what you experience outside. So you experience the world, you learn about it, that makes your mind think like this and then you apply this to the outside. Hmm. Now you get uh, between them somebody who tries to adjust things like Kant. And Kant comes and says, well, look, there probably is something already in the inside, which gets also applied to the outside, and you can get kind of a relationship between inner and outer, and then you form yourself. But there is something inside. And what is inside is the dynamics of the mind. So he said, there is the outside, which has its own reality of laws and forces and gets organized under a certain way of behaving. You know, behaving means between atoms and molecules and objects falling and all of that and relationship between light and and electricity and all of that. That's the outside. It obviously influences also the inside, but the inside is where the actual organizing power ultimately comes. And the inside is that mind and intellect. So, for example, that brings us back to transcending and transcendental. For Kant, when he says transcendental aesthetics or transcendental organizing power, he means the intellect, Mm. he means the mind, he means all of this together, that there is a dynamic value that is not physical. It's internal. But it's internal. And that is the transcendental argument, the reality that there is the outer, but there is also the inner, which is transcendental. What is interesting in transcendental meditation, it actually, the transcendence is deeper than even the mind, the intellect, and the ego. So you transcend even the intellect itself. You transcend the mind itself. And so, whereas different techniques, they might try to work with the mind and the intellect on their level and say, you think of this, you manipulate the mind like this, you adjust it like that. 
and there you can try to understand your world better, you can get in touch with your physiology better, with your surrounding better. Of course, compared to somebody who's totally a football of situations and circumstances, be kicked around and working in a frantic way to get some sense of, you know, stillness, some kind of mm -hmm. sorting yourself and getting yourself a bit more organized is very helpful. There is no question. But that is not really transcending in the full value. Transcending that we are talking about, that is in transcendental meditation, is the possibility, the ability of the mind to actually go beyond thought, beyond intellect, and even beyond the small sense of self, the little self, the ego, to the bigger self, if you like, the transcendental self. And in transcending during meditation, you don't have any thoughts, you don't have any feelings as such, you don't have any specific experience, and there is no object in awareness other than consciousness aware of itself. So all the philosophers who have thought about all of this and analyzed it throughout history, they were analyzing on the basis of what was available to them. They didn't have a technique of transcending. So you sit and think and you say, I'm conscious, I'm always conscious of something, you know. I'm always having a thought, a feeling or something. So transcending the physical, going to the mental is one layer. But if you have a technique that actually takes you to the full transcending, then you experience that there is something beyond the mind, intellect and ego. There is something which is pure being, pure transcendental existence. Why was that even a... a why philosophy? What, you know, just I'm such a practical person. Why would a person sit around and try and figure that out? What, what, is there a practical application, or is it similar in a way to the physicist who's trying to understand deeper structures of life, but then they're looking at some practical application? So was Hume and Kant and these others? Was it just because they had nothing? I know this sounds yeah, silly, no, but no, why, 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 why would they care? You see, in science today, we try to understand because we have a method. We have a method of research and objective research. We have technology, we have advanced in technology and all of that. So we get to do things and understand the world from its surface value, from its what it gives us. And, you know, this is also what we can call another aspect of way of looking at life, which is called pragmatism or utilitarianism. So you're pragmatic, you are utilitarian, which means whatever works, works, whatever doesn't work, yeah. doesn't <laughs> work, you know, I waste my time yeah. in trying to understand who I am and what is this. And that's why also about, over time, philosophy kind of lose, uh, is losing its, um, or has lost to some extent, its importance. But when you reach the ultimate value of science, you kind of find out that subjectivity is a value that is always present. See, the difference between subjectivity and objectivity is to be objective is to be studying things from the perspective of the objects, which means physical things, they interact with each other. We know how they interact, they lead to something, and that's all we have. And that is really classical mechanics and all of that told us that, you know, this is how it is. The apple falls this way. That's what is practical and the rest is not practical. The problem with this actually is that it limits human potential 
and human ability from perceiving, number one, understanding, number two, but also using, mainly, number three, something which is hidden from the eyes, if you like, a potentiality of life which is not available only on the surface level. So we had the classical Newtonian physics that is good enough to work with the world as it is, but then scientists kept probing deeper and deeper. What is the atom made of? It's made out of elementary particles. What are the elementary particles? Are What are made of? Because the more you know about reality, the more you are able to use that for the benefit of life on Earth. So there are some scientific research studies that on the face value are purely science and understanding. And you might say, it's not practical. Why are, you know, why are scientists wasting time to understand you know, how the molecules work? Well, because if you know how the molecules work, you understand chemistry. If you understand chemistry, you can understand biology. If you understand biology, you might understand the mind because they are related. One influences the other. <laughs> so what is making the molecules work the way they do? What does it take to create chemistry? You go to physics. You, the physical value, the molecules, the atoms, the elementary particles, the fields. And so on that level, you say you understand the fields. What is it? What is its importance? Well, it's big importance. It allows you to use electricity, for example, to understand the laws of electricity. It allows you to use deeper values. Ultimately, when you go deeper and deeper, it it reached ultimately through theoretical understanding, for example, the atomic value and the atomic energy and the power of the atomic energy. Unfortunately, it was very much destructive and has been used, misused, depending on how which angle you look at it. But it gives us a certain knowledge of nature that ultimately allows us to use that knowledge for the benefit on the outer value. If you go deeper than that, you go to the values of the fields beyond the atomic and the particle level, the quantum mechanical, then the unified field theories, and there you reach a unified field. So now you can say, what is the value of you know, breaking your head as a mathematician, let's say, not as a philosopher, to write a Lagrangian of the unified field, the formula of the unified field? It's almost philosophy, basically, because it's the mind working with the mind trying to formulate the dynamics of the unified field. And one can say it's almost philosophical, but it's beyond that. It actually opens the awareness of the individual, the society, human life, that there are dimensions of reality which are deeper and deeper and deeper. Now, originally in the Vedic tradition, from where transcendental meditation comes, as brought to light by Maharishi, it says there is a field that is... So you can say that is a subjective knowledge. You can say that is a philosophy. But it's a philosophy that has been put to practice. There is a technology with it. And therefore, if we resolve these issues, then we can understand why some things work and how to use them. Now. In science, there are two things. There is the theory and there is the practice. There is the utilitarian value 
and there is the understanding of the mechanics of how things work. If you really want to convince a scientist that something works in a certain way, usually the scientist expects a logic of how it works based on the knowledge that we have today. You can say, the, uh, you know, the apple falls because of gravity. You have to know, okay, mass and other experiments have shown that it is similar and it works like this. So there is a theoretical basis, there is an experimental basis, and then when you put the things together, you know you have something that we call real and true. So, we have different reasons why people investigate things. One is the nature of a human mind. Nature of human mind and intellect is always to know more. So it's the nature of life. You can say, why these philosophers wasted their time and, you know, because they had nothing else to do? Maybe, but the real reason is the nature of life is to grow. The nature of life is to understand more. The nature of life is to share knowledge and, and to expand knowledge. This is part of the evolutionary power of life, that we all want to know more, have more love, have more experience, have more understanding. So there is a force as if of evolution, a force in human life that is even beyond the utilitarian side, the practical side, that pushes us towards understanding more. The good side of it also is that it does have a very utilitarian, very pragmatic and useful side. The proof is here in transcendental meditation is that to transcend and to go to that value is something that is extremely practical. It improves your mind, your behavior, your, it improves your health, it improves your society, decrease of crime and conflicts, and how to understand all of these things. We understand them based on some logic. See, one of the problems we have, for example, in telling people, look, if a group of people practice this program together, they create positive effect in society, and you do the research and it's very pragmatic and it's very objective and you repeat it and it works and it works and it works. But people have hard time to get it. Why? Because they don't have the theoretical framework that would let them understand that it is possible, that there is a logic behind it. You see, so that's why theoretical understanding of nature together with the practical results that a program brings are important together for people to ultimately uh, adopt something. Um, you, as you were talking, it, it gave rise to this thought today quite prominently in the world is a philosophy of mindfulness, that there is no sort of idea of a transcendent that events come along and that you should be able to emotion to sort of um, disengage yourself, um, uh, emotionally disengage, so you're not being caught up and that, that, that there's suffering in the world, suffering exists, because I hear this, suffering exists, and it's always going to exist, and the only thing you can do is learn to remove yourself from that. So your, your practice, that um, di disengagement. Well, that seems to be fundamentally different than the notion that there's a field, a transcendent field that's beyond, you could say, suffering, that's beyond the relative, and that you can access 
And I think that that's a very interesting idea. And probably it's along that same thought that, and maybe that's the same reason why it's hard to understand that people meditating here could reduce crime there. Is there's no sort of sense of a connectivity other than I see you. But um, modern science seems to have progressed far beyond that philosophy, whether it's of the philosophers from before or even that approach to, to meditation. Would you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, if we want to look at it from a pure scientific way, you can actually have the complete opposite side because science today is uh, based on laws. There are laws of nature that determine the behavior of physical world as well as chemical, biological, and then from biological to psychological to sociological to social, from the physical to the bio, uh, chemical to the biological, also to the mind, body, behavior, and society. And so we have to say either we live in a world that is totally haphazardous and disconnected, or we live in an organized universe, in a world that has, you know, laws. For a scientist, it is all based on laws, and that's why if you actually look deeper into this question, you get into scientists having to face the fact that everything is kind of deterministic. This brings us to a total new perspective of what we can analyze. And deterministic means that there is an action that leads to a reaction. The reaction is an action by itself which leads to another reaction. And this why systematically everything happens. Now, when you look at the deeper levels of nature, you find that particles get what we call entangled, and their behavior depends on each other. So, for scientists who are very rigorous in looking at things, this question of total entanglement is a reality where every action you do, every thought you have, every behavior you have, doesn't just influence you, but it influences the whole fabrics of nature, the whole fabrics of creation, and the, re the reality is that we are all interconnected. Now, not to be a football of situation and circumstances is also very important because uh, to go back to yourself is some level. Now, you can go back to yourself on a mood-making level, which means you say yourself, come, relax, take it easy, dissociate yourself from the outside and then at some level you can do it which is very important to relax to get out because of the hectic reality of life pushing us around there is a moment where you have to settle down so that's no harm to do that however the ability to do that on that surface level remains limited and the results will always be limited based on one's ability to understand intellectually, to analyze situations, to overcome emotions and all of that. But at least as a, as a little help, it's, it's fine. But to truly connect yourself with your own real self, go back to the unified field of natural law, which is your true being, go back to that reality which is beyond any change itself and establish that in your being is the actual ultimate goal of all those who even are trying on a surface level to dissociate themselves. Is there, a, is there proof of this? 
in the brain, you know, I happen to know that w Dr. Travis, yourself have said every experience changes the brain. Can you talk about, because otherwise we're just theory, we're just philosophy more. Oh, the brain can do this and you can access this. Tell me about um, what the brain shows when a person transcends. See, the brain we can look at as different components, if you like, computer chips. Mm -hmm. You can look at it this way too. I mean, it is not that, but there is this aspect of it. There are different parts of the brain that handle different uh, aspects of our reality. Vision, hearing, but also um, anticipation of the future, interpreting of the events, checking out, of, uh, you know, fact-checking, uh, the uh, emotionals that we call emotions, they are also stored there as chemicals in different parts of the brain. Um, and there are things that are said to protect us, to defend us against harm. There are things that we've inherited that are in our DNA that shape our brain in a specific way or the other. The intellectual ability to say intellectually, you know, if somebody is feeling depressed or anxious, and to say, uh, oh, I should disconnect myself and get back and all of that, is kind of an okay system. But how much does it actually transform the physiology so that it creates the ability of the nervous system to behave as a holistic entity? See, it's again the same story. If you have thousand chips and they are working independently, separately and not connected with each other, they can only perform certain level of calculation and ability to understand and sort things out. If all of these are put together, then you have um, calculating and analyzing, uh, managing ability, which is huge. Is that what they call a network? Yeah, network. network. That's why now, you know, people like to, to have this, if they put their computers on the network, actually the computers, all of them can be analyzing, uh, processing mm -hmm. all of these things. So the processing power, Processing power depends on the ability of individual components to talk to each other and process things parallel one with the other. So we can say the brain has these parallel processors. One will analyze the heat, one will analyze the coolness, one will analyze the speed, one will analyze the frequency of light, one will analyze the frequency of sound, one will mm. analyze and compare to memory, one will analyze compared to future potentialities and all of that. And so all of these coming together give you an ability to, to manage and calculate uh, events and be able to foresee and make a decision for the future which is much more holistic. So in transcendental meditation, we have seen that all of these brain chips, which are the different parts of the brain, open up to each other. This is what we call generally uh, coherence in the brain. So you have front coherence with the back, right, with the left, that is really opening up all of these reserves of the brain that are sitting unused and allowing all of these chips to do parallel processing in a powerful way. And so it is physically there. We know that it happens during the process of transcending. It has been done and redone the studies on people who practice transcendental meditation, showing brain coherence that is very profoundly increased. And the results of that, so because by itself, okay, there is greater brain coherence, so what? What happens is the brain influences the neuroendocrine system, which means this mind 
technique of transcending, opening up the field of awareness to pure consciousness, is reflected in a brain that is working as a holistic, coherent entity. This brain, the neuroside, neurological side, working like this, influences the endocrine side, and we know exactly how it works from the cortical levels, influencing the hypothalamus, hypothalamus pituitary gland, pituitary gland influencing all the hormones of the body. That's why we have a psychoneuro endocrine level. Endocrine means the secretion of hormones in the, in the body. So there is the psychological side, the mental side, influencing the neurological side, the nervous side, which influences the hormones that and the transmitters that are secreted in the whole body and themselves they influence the immune system they rebalance the body the body has an amazing ability to be flexible to readjust itself and to correct itself if you give it a chance to do that and so we are not talking about just some mental you know using one chip which is a mental process where the human intelligence is still kind of limited based on understanding because a person can say to a ten, 10 people, go back to yourself, take it easy, disconnect from things. Every one of these 10 people is going to understand this and process it differently and behave with it differently, even if you keep telling them. But, you know, when somebody has something on their mind, it's going to go back and back and it's going to, you know, find themselves the mind busy with all these issues that they have to do and you disconnect and disconnect but ultimately too much disconnecting on the surface can be almost like a schizophrenic <laughs> i'm not saying that these yeah. techniques create that but disconnect is not necessarily the right thing what you want is actually to connect in the proper level of connection and to connect to the proper level of connection is to go to the transcendental value which connects everything together from the most stable and strong value of life. So transcendental meditation, while transcending the surface, reaches to the state of unity value, which connects everything. What we want is ultimate connectedness, but not on the surface, busy, stressed level, connectedness in the depths of life. And that is what happens with people who transcend or practice transcendental meditation. They reach a sense of inner stability and strength because their self is the self of everything and everyone. It's the unified field of natural law. Otherwise, disconnection is schizophrenia. Schizophrenia means a state of the mind which is schizos, schiz, is divided, is, is divided. So is disconnect and dispassionate similar? Because they use, oh, they also will you talk about dispassionate, sort of remove yourself, similar? They can be similar. They can be similar, but this is a very important point also in, in transcendental meditation. And that is, we are not getting away from the other. See, there are two ways to look at disconnect and dispassionate. One is, let's say somebody suffering, and which you brought as an example. And what you do is, you say, no, no, I'm not going to be involved in that. I'm going to go back to my stability, why should I suffer, and like that. And this can be understood of not feeling with the other, not letting your emotions uh, understand the other. And so what do you get? A society with little robots that are independent from each other, trying to, you know, find their own little interests and 
getting disconnected from what is happening, not feeling the, the feelings of that and this. That is not the idea. There is a different way to, to be not involved on the feeling of pain level, but very involved on the interest and the attention towards the other. So if a person is suffering, you can say, I can't bear it, I just turn my back and run away. And you say, okay, this is, I saved myself from this situation. You can say, I can sit with a person, I can't do anything, but start feeling the pain and crying, and this is being empathic, empathy and feeling and all of that. But there you start with one person tired and stressed, you end with two people tired and stressed, one person with pain, you end with two people in pain. That is also not very conducive to the best situation. What you can have also is somebody who says, I want to be strong so I can help the other. And therefore, going back to the self is not running away from the other. In fact, if you look at the complete understanding of the situation, you're getting the closest possible to the other by going back into your deep self because the other person's self, herself or his self, is ultimately yourself. And that's what transcendental meditation awakens in the awareness. It awakens in the awareness this deep connectivity with everything. But the other person, we can say, during suffering and problems is, is you know, facing situation for whatever reason that are not deeply connected with the true nature of life. For some reason, there has been a violation of natural law or some problems have created issues which create stress. So you don't want to connect to the stress. You want to connect to the real person, not to the stress part of the person. I mean, to me, the, the thing that comes home is this idea that there is something other, there's something deeper, there's something, you know, that word transcendent. Before we did this interview, I looked up what the word transcendent means, and it says to go beyond ordinary human limits. And I was thinking that we often try to do that, we try and break our boundaries. So, you know, we go to, a, I mean, from the small things, from going to a new restaurant or going to a different vacation or jumping out of an airplane or running faster and that we want sort of the extraordinary to break up the mundane but then the extraordinary becomes ordinary after a while because it's just what yours and that's frustrating for people so then they take drugs or they do something to yeah. break boundaries so what you're introducing here is sort of the idea of a of a vertical dimension to the mind that there's something inside that's deeper not just change your mind and change your experiences or um, distance yourself from a thought or an emotion. And that's quite an interesting notion that basically what Maharshi has reintroduced and what Dr. Nader is the uh, head of the international TM organization, what Dr. Nader is emphasizing is that there's a whole realm that is untapped. And a lot of people who are watching this know that there's a great, and you mentioned the changes in the brain and the connectivity and better health. But thousands of years ago, people weren't meditating because of what they understood that it did for their high blood pressure, that it did something to the frontal lobes. They did it for bigger things. And the whole notion of enlightenment, which is obviously a, is a very abstract idea. I have, uh, in the remaining time, I have three questions. 
Do I have a comment on this? Okay, also. you comment first. <laughs> you comment. The thing and is... Still, I still get three questions. Yeah. <laughs> the, the thing is, if we backtrack a little bit and find, you know, that um, many philosophies have come. You know, you say ancient times and philosophy and all of that. And ultimately, so many people had so many ideas about the nature of life, about what happens and how to behave and, and all of that, all on a subjective level. But being themselves not fully maybe developed or awake or having enough knowledge or even in some cases enough intelligence, they just promoted things that people not knowing where to go, they followed them. And then it became a system or a practice or whatever. And then one day people said, but there are so many contradictions. How can we sort all this out? And so scientists came out and people came in and empiricism and all of that to say, look, it's enough of this subjectivity and all of that. Let's look at things as they are, be utilitarian, look at the objects, look at life and all of that. And it brought a lot of advances, modern science, to let us understand nature. However, what it also brought is a sense of uh, despise or looking down at anything subjective or mm -hmm. mental. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to the fact that, you know, trans psychology is a science. In exactly. The Psychiatry is a science. In the old days, it was just a joke. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. what this brought us to also is people intuitively, based on their nature, they want more. And that's why you say, you know, they use the term to transcend, which means to grow, basically. Because to grow means to go from one thing to another to another. So, so every time there is a new creation, uh, it's as if you leave behind something that was you, in a sense. But, you, you know, the idea I transcend, it means I, I go beyond it, also means to grow. And the nature of life is to grow. So we cannot say that those who are doing this are wrong. They really are into wanting more and wanting more, wanting more. The problem is we live in such a, an intensely objective, materialistic kind of life that the search for more is always outside, outside, outside. And inside and the subjectivity has had such a bad press <laughs> that, you know, people don't want to talk. Yeah, <laughs> no, don't want to talk about it. Yeah. The reality is that no matter, absolutely no matter what you do on the outside, you'll always be wanting for a little more, a little more. Many of us get astonished to see the top billionaires, you know, still going for one billion more, you know. It's like, I have 40 billion, but my friend has 45 billion. I want to have 46 billion. You know, it's like for us normal people, yeah. <laughs> usual people, it's like, come on, you know, a few million yeah. <laughs> or even a few thousand for some of us. And they are content and happy, just want to be able to live and and eat and all of that. So what's the what's the thing? You know, is are these people crazy? Did they get absolutely nuts? The thing is, it's the nature of life. And if you emphasize always the outer, the outer, the outer, then it's gonna go like that. Now fine, whatever they do, it's great. Let them make twenty billion and hundred billion more. This is not the issue. The issue is they'll never get fulfillment completely just from the outer. You have to go to the inner. What transcendental meditation does is allow the mind to settle down inside. So whereas the senses and the emotions and the desires are taking us outside, the reality of life that gives fulfillment and happiness is coming 
from the basis of an inner established self and a growing self, a growing, expanding sense of being, sense of self. And in the unified field, there is greatest intelligence because it manages the whole universe. There is greatest power because it gives all power to the universe. There is greatest peace because it's infinite, pure being, pure peace in itself. There is greatest bliss because its nature is happiness. There is the greatest fulfillment because it unifies all the facets of life and gives the totality of energy and intelligence. So when you go to that self, you are transcending the limited perception of reality and expanding your awareness. You know, going back to the philosophers and scientists who said, I think, therefore I am, and all that, which means the one thing we are absolutely sure about is that we are conscious. We are conscious being. All the rest is a changing field of what we call relative field. The one thing that is absolute is consciousness. And to expand our consciousness, expand our awareness, that is what we call enlightenment. That's what you brought in terms. And therefore, there has been a time where for whatever quality of time there was, people went inside and discovered fulfillment inside. So the research was within. Mm-hmm. Now the search is on the outer value. Maybe they were lucky they didn't have so much in the outer value. <laughs> so they did the research in introspection. They went inwards. And that is a science also. The same way as today we analyze and study things objectively on a scientific level on the surface, they went inward and they discovered the ability and the technology to actually experience fullness and wholeness and happiness within themselves. Also, stability, intelligence, and strength came as a bonus within that reality. So today in our daily life, if we can go back to that, that will also give us the ability to make more billions and millions and all of that, if we so desire. The thing is, we don't want to get lost in the object, you know? A person who who is possessed by wealth is not a free person. Possessed by, there is no harm to have as much wealth as you want. But don't be possessed by it. You have to possess it. And to possess it, you have to be established in yourself, not yourself established in the possession. Because established in the possession, the possession goes and comes, grows and diminishes and you have heart palpitations based on the circumstances on the outside. But if you possess it and really possess it, you don't mind to, you know, you are yourself and the rest you just enjoy. And I I see so many people um, who have some abundance in their life admitting to me that they can't even appreciate it that they don't even appreciate what what they have even a, a little as a matter of fact sometimes they remember fondly when they had less and because that it's it's so much to you know manage house households with all these people if they're the same person inside if they have the same creativity the same intelligence the same capacity to manage when they had just an apartment and now they have 10 homes and they haven't grown in that capacity to manage and administer i have a, i have another question for you this is great and we have to pick up where we left off next time. On, we leave off this time. There's a there's something in life that that sort of like 
the term serendipity or luck or everything follows according to plan, but there's just some things that you just, you just can't explain, like just good luck. And I know that Maharshi said, no, that actually there's a science to that, which sounds sort of strange, that there could be a science to good luck. And he talked about the term, when I first heard it, I had first started meditating, he said, nature support. And I, I what does nature support mean? And so if you're talking to a, a class of sixth graders, which is I'm a sixth grader, what does nature support mean? And how is it possible that what seems random and lands in someone's lap fortunately could somehow be relied upon? It is not an aberration, but a way one lives one's life. And is that a little bit like these sort of like these evangelicals who say, well, you know, you believe in this and you'll get a new car and you'll get all those sorts of things. So just those two words, nature and support, and how <laughs> transcending impacts that in sixth graders. You know, if you understand the world as not being logical based on laws and there are haphazard things that can happen, obviously you can postulate good luck and bad luck because things can happen. You know, during the times of the Greeks, they also had this phenomenon where they don't know, everything seems to be working and suddenly things go wrong. And so they had a term which is called deus ex machina, which means the interference of the gods and the affairs of human beings. Mm -hmm which is beyond human control because the gods decided, you know, that they want to change things. Yeah. So to say you on have bad whim, luck or whim, good luck, yeah. you know, you can, you can put it in any of such contexts. But if you want to look at it as a scientific way, you can say that nothing happens to you that you do not deserve or you have not planted yourself as a seed in the past. And today the seed has become a tree and it's bringing its own fruits, maybe at an unexpected time or in a way that is unsure. So Jesus said that, didn't he? <laughs> as you sow. As you sow, so shall you reap. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a wisdom of order in nature, of balance in nature. For of, every action. As you, you know, as you sow, so shall you reap. For every action, there is a reaction. So being in the scientific mind frame, I think we look at it more like this. Now, what is interesting is that in how many ways can you act? You can act on the surface level, on a gross level, on a struggling level. And now we know that if the mind actually can have access to the unified field of natural law, you can act on a much more profound level, which has more energy, more power, and ability to penetrate things more. So what happens in transcendental meditation, and that's what gets us to support of nature, is that you can access the field of pure being, which is the unified field. And since it is the source of all intelligence, creativity, and everything outside that is expressed, if you, from that level, have a desire, then your desire is fulfilled in a much com more complete and bigger way because you're acting from that level. This is one level. Another level is there are laws of nature that construct the universe. They come from the unified field, which we also call the home of all the laws of nature because everything that is manifest comes from that field of pure being. 
Now, when you act in life against those laws, you naturally create friction. And this friction leads to reaction, action and reaction, as you sow, so shall you reap. That is a natural way. So support of nature is a spontaneous process whereby you are acting in accordance with the laws of nature, so you get the support of nature. You know, if you are wanting to, to swim and fast, and you swim with the stream, you get a faster, you know, movement. If you swim against the stream, you get a slower movement. So you can call this, oh, from the outside, if you don't understand how the stream is working or how the current is working, you can look on the beach and see some two people swimming, one in one direction, the other in the other direction, and one looks like a world champion of swimming, is going so fast, and the other one is really struggling. And you can say, oh, this guy is swimming so fast. Maybe he has got the current in the right direction and the other one got the wrong direction of the current. From the outside, it looks like this guy is either doing great or he's lucky. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and from the other side, this guy is bad luck or poor behavior, poor, poor um, thing. The thing is just he's swimming against the stream. So support of nature is to swim with the stream. Nature has order, it has laws. You go against the laws, you're swimming, <laughs> or you're moving in your life in a smaller steps, in a less speed. You go with the laws and they carry you. You have your sail full of wind, the wind of nature, the wind of life is carrying you. That is support of nature, nothing more nor less. It's not like some some deus ex machina suddenly coming in and changing things for you. We could do an hour on this alone. When you were talking, I was just thinking that two things I was thinking. Support of nature could be as simply, if you choose to eat good food, you're healthy. Yeah. If you choose to eat bad food, then you get sick. And it's not, it's not just random. There's a cause to the whole thing. Right. And how do you choose based on your knowledge? Yes. And you know, experience. if you don't know, if you are stressed, if you are tired, if you're angry, many of us do that, you know, you go and start eating, you start doing things, your mind is busy, you get the chocolate, you get the food, you get this ice cream, you get this, you get that, without and realizing. And that's all before breakfast. Yeah, I know, without <laughs> realizing, you're just acting like this. But if you're rested, had a good night's sleep, feeling good with yourself, you choose better. Yeah, spontaneously. So, spontaneously. So yeah. that is what we're saying. Go back to yourself, be settled, be happy inside, and then you can make the right choices. And then, you know, just support of nature. There is a saying that I know from some tradition. It says, somebody goes and, and plays with the hornet's nest and pushes it and throws it in the air, gets all, you know, eaten up by them, and says, oh my God, destiny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, not yeah. destiny, it's your yeah. action. But, all right, so this is going to be something because I know we need to wrap up. But now your whole sense of time, though, has to be different because there are children who are born with leukemia. There's people who are, you know, Syrian refugees. So if one is really saying, um, and, and that's very offensive to people to think, oh, you brought that on yourself, that little child brought that on themselves. So you're, you're really giving a longer timeline mm -hmm. because obviously it had to have been something before this 
yeah. this appearance on Earth at this time, correct? Yes, this takes us to a, you know, a whole, a whole context. Another, yeah. you know, I find like the idea of reincarnation, for example, very compelling in that sense, which means uh, it's, it's a big problem of uh, existential problem. Why some people are born like this, why some people are born like that. You can different theories, you know, maybe you can say God loves those but doesn't love that. Why is that? Why is God not fair? You know, yeah. so, so you get into and these people things. get upset with God. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if you want more balance and fairness, you would assume that there is some continuity in life. And maybe this has been a reason. This is one of the logics. Another logic is it's really very personal. Sometimes suffering is not always bad. It can guide people to a new beginning, to a new dimension in life. You know, some people can be exiled from some place and they find themselves in a, in a circumstances that are so much more uh, productive and open and all of them. So the calamity brings out some amazing things. You know, I think sometimes of all the beautiful children that David Lynch Foundation that you are so beautifully caring for in so many schools. And in my mind, I feel like these kids have had maybe they think the worst circumstances in their life and compared to some rich kids or like that. And but they are ending up learning transcendental meditation because society thinks they need rehabilitation. And therefore you're bringing this to them, raising their awareness, they're going probably if they continue to become enlightened individuals and make huge contributions to society. Whereas some very rich kids, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, they might end up in drugs and problems. So, you know, ultimately in life, uh, it is not just the outer value that is the reference point. It's the inner happiness, how much you're happy, how much you're satisfied, how much you're fulfilled. And the things that life brings you and forces you to work with in order to grow and adapt. My feeling is that life always brings the best to everyone and shapes things so that everyone, whoever they are, under whatever circumstances, they have a chance to work with a situation and get over it and improve their uh, state of personal evolution and growth. Even in the, his Science of Being and Art of Living that Maharshi wrote, he, he said one sign of a person who is growing or evolving is that whatever comes their way, they make the best of it. Whatever comes their exactly. way, because you can't predict anything. I mean, even a person who has a lot of wealth, there can be a, a grave sickness in the family that just comes, and that can either destroy the family or the family can use it to grow closer together and to come up with new approaches to life. So it's it's not a simple thing that we can just talk about in, in a few minutes, but I appreciate you opening this door, and I want to uh, continue down that road in a subsequent conversation. I have one last question for you in the context of everything you've said. Enlightenment is said to be liberation or freedom from bondage. It's a big word. <laughs> you know, freedom from bondage. So again, in a, in a language that the public could understand, because these are terms that I'm finding people are much more interested in. What does that mean? Because freedom from bondage it's, is different than saying infinite creativity, yeah. infinite happiness. It's, it's like a... It's a very name? simple. It's very simple. Whenever you look at an object, uh, your consciousness is overtaken by that object. 
You know, you see the flower, in a way you become the flower. Moment after moment, you are flower, you are the other person, you are that thought, you are that fear, because your mind is overtaken by all of these individual awareness, individual objects of awareness. Someone makes you, something you see makes you happy, something you see makes you sad. Exactly. And also your own like awareness. What is the awareness of the self? Where is the self? You know somehow that you are yourself, that you are, you know, Elizabeth or George David or whatever person. But in your daily life, you're constantly the flower, the tree, the house, the plan, the future, the past, because you think about them and they overtake you. That is what we call bondage. You are bound <laughs> by the objects of perception. Your whole consciousness is bound by the object of perception. In transcending, you free yourself from those boundaries and you experience your true self as a transcendental being. The true self that you experience is your reality, which is not bound by anything. That is the unified field, which has no boundaries. It is infinite, unbounded, pure existence. And that is your true self. When you experience that during meditation, this is the moment where you are freeing yourself. You are liberated from the boundaries of perception. What happens with regular practice of transcendental meditation is that this transcendental experience that you have just for moments during, during your TM practice becomes more and more stabilized. And as it becomes 100% stabilized, even while your eyes are open and active in the outside, you see the object, of course, but you never are out of touch with yourself. So yourself is free from the boundaries of perception. That is enlightenment. That is moksha, which is liberation. You are eternally free. You can live among things, but inside yourself, you are that one unbounded, pure being, which can see things, experience them on the outside, laugh, cry if you want, be firm, be angry, be happy on the outside. But the inner is completely stable sense of being. This is what some other technique tried to achieve on a surface level. Oh, get yourself away, get yourself away. You can never mood make this. It's a whole transformation, mental, physical, that takes place with regular practice of transcending and then transcending becomes stabilized. And we have a term for this, we call it cosmic consciousness. So in cosmic consciousness means the individual is always established in the self, yet acting in the outside. That is a state of moksha, a state of liberation. We have been talking with uh, Dr. Tony Nader, who, who studied with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, His Holiness Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, for decades, and today is the world's greatest authority and exponent on this knowledge of consciousness, creativity, the brain, life, philosophy, <laughs> transcendence. It's been an honor to uh, continue this conversation with you, and it's just opening the doors to so many more topics of discussion. So thank you Beautiful. very, very My much. My joy, thank you. Thank you Thank you much. for doing that. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.